Everyone worships something. What do you think? Is that true? What is it in your life that you couldn't live without? What is it that you can't imagine life without? Or put it another way, what, what motivates you to do what you do? Sure, there are lots of things, but what primarily does your life orient around? When other things push and pull at our time, what wins? We all worship something. In the sense that we, to worship means to completely devote yourself to something. To make that the center of your existence. Of course, we know it's supposed to be God. And we, and we say it. And at times, I, I hope we live it. But the reality is, is that it's a whole lot easier to worship what we sing. And I think that's the way most people exist most of the time. Focusing and worshiping and devoting their lives to what they can see around them. Because it's so much easier. It's always been this way. You know, we look back at, at ancient religions and we, sometimes we kind of mock them a little bit. We, you know, we sort of laugh at them, you know, you know, worshiping gods like Baal or... Asherah or Ra or, or whatever, you know, the Greek gods and Zeus and all these different things. We sort of, sort of scoff at that now. You know, we think we're, we're so much more sophisticated, right? But really, they were just worshiping what they saw. Ra was the sun god. Sun's up there. Sometimes it's hotter than we like. Creates drought, famine. Sometimes it's not there as much as we'd like it to be. But it's there. It's consistent. It rises every day. No matter how many times it goes away, it always comes back. It'd be easy to see why people would, would worship it who had no understanding of anything else. Or the moon. Or, or the river. The gods like Baal and some of the others that the, that the Israelites kept having a hard time with, they were, just, they were usually agricultural gods. You know, they worshipped the ground and, and crops and they prayed for, for success in those things because they needed it. They relied on it. And, and sometimes the river delivered. Sometimes it didn't deliver enough. Sometimes it flooded and delivered way too much. And, boy, we need to pray harder or offer more sacrifices because the river God really wasn't happy this year. But um, they worshipped what they knew. They gave it names, but they were just worshipping what they saw. We tend to worship what we see. And not all idols, not all false gods, not all things that, that pull us apart from God, not all those things are inherently bad. In fact, there's few things that are inherently bad. Sometimes when we think about idols and false gods and, and things that would pull us away from God, things that, you know, that we worship, you know, sometimes we do think of silly things like, like idols or we think of false religions or maybe we think of like the really bad things in our culture like, like alcoholism or you know, drug addiction and, and things like that. I mean, we think about those things. And sometimes it's, it's easy for us to think about those things because if we're not dealing with those things, we can feel, okay, we're really worshiping God. We're really focused on Him. But the way Satan gets us so much of the time 
It's not through those things that we view as bad and horrible. A lot of times the way that Satan gets to us to distract us from God is through the good things. The things, very often, that he himself gave us. That rise to a place of importance that they were never supposed to take. And we're going to look at an example right here uh, in the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, turn to Second Kings, chapter 18. I'm going to read a little passage here that may not be familiar to a, a lot of you. Um, you don't hear about it just a whole lot, but it's, it's very fascinating, to me anyway. And uh, I think it gives a very good illustration of the kind of thing that we're talking about. How does something good go wrong? And so we see this story, and I'll explain a little bit of it after we read it, but it's in, in 2 Kings 18, 1 through 4. It says, Now it came about... In the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Interesting little story there. So you see Hezekiah become king, and Hezekiah was a good king. Uh, the, the kings of Judah, kind of inconsistent. Um, some followed God fully, some did not follow God at all, and some were kind of okay. Uh, but Hezekiah was one who, after, after generations, was a good king. Uh, he says that he followed God in all his ways, just like his father David had done. Not that David was his actual father. In Scripture, where it says father, it can mean ancestor, and, and very often it does. He was a descendant of King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, who, you know, consistently throughout his life followed God. You know, with a couple of exceptions that are major that we preach other sermons about. For most of his life, uh, he, he followed God fully. And even when he messed up and messed up badly, he immediately turned and repented when, you know, when, it, when, when confronted. And so for Hezekiah to, be, to, to say that he followed God like David did, that's huge. And so what did he do? That was so important. Well, he, uh, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars. Like, well, what's that? Well, a high place was a point up high, right? Okay, up on a mountain or something where people had built some kind of an altar to uh, worship either other gods, uh, sometimes even the true god, but in competition to the priests and, and others in Jerusalem, uh, sometimes the Israelites were kind of confused uh, about exactly what their God was like. And so you see sort of blendings of the worship of the true God with worship of other gods. But whatever the case, they would build these things in high places. Well, why would they build them on high places? Anyone ever climb a mountain and get to the top and look around? You just feel really close to God? It's pretty awesome. They felt the same way. You know, you're up high, and you just sort of, since that fellowship with God, we've always thought of God as being up high. 
which he's not literally, but that's how we've always kind of conceived of him. Um, you know, back in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, they tried to reach God by building a tower up to the sky. It didn't work out so well for them, but they tried, right? You know, God's, he's up high. And so this idea of, you know, just get as high as you can and build an altar to God or the gods or whatever God, and we worship, and these things were absolutely forbidden. They, were, they, they took away from the worship of God. You know, usually they involved some kind of false god. They were bad, and, um, and from time to time you see the kings of Judah tearing them down. And that's what Hezekiah does, and that was good. But then it specifies something that he tears down that's different from the high places. It says that he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. So what's this bronze serpent? That story may be a little bit more familiar to you, but we'll look at it real quick. It comes from the, the book of Numbers, uh, the fourth book in the Bible. And it takes place uh, several hundred years before that, about 700 years before this, when the people of Israel, have been, the Hebrews, have been brought out of Egypt, out of captivity in Egypt by Moses, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and God is sustaining them in the wilderness. He's providing food in the form of manna every single day except for on the Sabbath. Um, and the day before, he provides twice as much so they can, they can eat that day. Um, he supernaturally keeps their clothes from, from wearing out. He provides water miraculously on, on various occasions. He is, you know, he's sustaining them. He's guiding them. Uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant would go before the people with a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire, and they would follow that, and they would go wherever it went. So God was, was always in their presence. They were always following him, and he was always providing for them. But the people weren't always happy. And we have several stories about them complaining. The most significant time when they complained was when they, first, was when they got to the promised land the first time. And they got there. And they sent 12 spies into the land. Ten of the spies came back and said, there are some really big people there. And they've got high walls. I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they said, we've got God. What's the problem, right? We can do this. But the people followed the ten spies' report, and they rebelled against Moses initially, and so God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I promised you this land. I promised it would be yours. Going all the way back to the time of Abraham, it was going to be yours. But you don't want to trust me, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you walk around here in the wilderness for about 40 years. Let let this generation pass away, and we're going to give it to your kids. And maybe they'll, do, maybe they'll be a little more receptive. I mean, it's not like God hadn't shown them, you know, the Ten Plagues and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and, you know, the Red Sea parting. And, you know, God had actually been consistent in showing them who he was. But he's like, if that wasn't enough, after all this time, you guys were going to let you die out for 40 years. You just wander around and your kids will inherit the land. And that's, in fact, what happened. So what we find in the book of Numbers is uh, they're wandering around. And, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, they're not real happy about it. And uh, it says in, in Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Now, God's already told them it's going to be 40 years. But, you know, whatever, they're, they're impatient. I don't know why it matters if you go the long way. If you're Anyway, but they got impatient. And uh, the people spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe 
this miserable food, the manna that God had supernaturally provided every single day at their doorstep. Um, we hate it. Can't stand it. So, God says, all right. We're going to send fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Yes, you have. And because we have spoken against the Lord in you, so intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And so then the Lord said to Moses, okay, here's what you're going to do. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And so that's what they do. They make a bronze serpent. They set it on a standard. And, you know, when they looked at it, they lived. That was 700 years ago. Now it's Hezekiah's time period. This bronze snake on a pole, it's still around after 700 years. Turns out it never went away. And at some point, this thing that had been given to them by God, at some point its purpose shifted. Instead of being something they looked to and, you know, were healed, now it's become some kind of an object of worship. And most scholars think, as opposed to being on one of these high places that Hezekiah tore down, most people think that this was actually probably set in the temple court in Jerusalem the heart of their worship. So what happened? First of all, why would God even give them this thing? I mean, you know, he'd already said, do not make graven images, right? And don't worship false gods. So why would he even give them this, this snake, you know, for this temptation? Was he just, was he just saying I'm up to fail? Well, no. Uh, it actually served a, a bit different purpose. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus explains it this way. He says uh, in John 3, 14 and 15, right before John 3, 16, who, which you probably all know, uh, the two verses preceding that, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, people are going to look to me, and those who truly look to me in a you know, salvific sense, really trust me, you know, they'll... They'll have eternal life. So what's, what's this Nehushtan thing? What's this snake? Is it some kind of representative of God? No. It's not exactly the same. When Jesus was lifted up, he wasn't lifted up in the sense of, you know, this is your opportunity for, you know, for, you know I mean, this was your opportunity for eternal life. But what it was, it was a, it was a display of the full effect of what our sin had done. The nature of sin, James says, is death. Death, destruction, humiliation. It's ugly. And when Jesus died on the cross, it demonstrated that to everybody. That this was the price of sin. This is what your sin has brought us to. The death of Christ himself. The Messiah that you all expected dead on a cross in the most humiliating, painful way imaginable. When he resurrected, of course... You know, there was life in that. But on the cross, that was, it was not a pretty picture. That's what our sin had done. And in the wilderness with Moses, it was the same thing. This snake that represented the fiery snakes that were, you know, the snakes that were biting them and killing them, this is what our sin has done to us. This is, this is what we've done to ourselves. 
But God, in his mercy, he's providing a way out. He's providing a path out. So this snake started out as good. Served a good purpose. And you can imagine, after this certain incident was over, maybe Moses, maybe someone else said, hey, we should hang on to this thing to remind us of what God has done here. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this specifically, but, you know, so I'm kind of speculating here, but that's probably something along the lines of what happened. God did this. We need to remember. And so let's hang on to this thing. And so they kept it with them, and, and probably throughout the centuries, that is what it had been used for, to remind them of you know, not complaining against God, to, you know, of being grateful or, or whatever, but, but they kept it, initially probably for good reasons. Because here's the thing. This thing was 700 years old. It had been around for a long time. It says that Hezekiah did all that David did. He served, you know, he, he, did, you know, he served God just like David had. This thing was around during, Dave, during David's time, but David didn't get rid of it. Well, why? Maybe it wasn't a problem then. Maybe it was still serving its good purpose. It hadn't become a, you know, hadn't become a problem yet. People were seeing it in its correct state. But something happened along the way, and that changed. And people started offering incense to it and viewing it possibly as God himself, a, for, you know, a representation of God himself, or at the very least, attaching too much power to it, you know, going to it for healing or, or whatever. You see, a good thing used the wrong way always leads to disaster, right? There was an old song back when I was a teenager growing up, a Christian song. It's kind of silly, uh, but it was called Screen Door on a Submarine. And it said, faith without works is as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You know, just two things that just don't go together well. Um, good things used out of their proper context are bad. You don't want a screen door on your submarine, right? You don't, you don't build a submarine or out, of, out of cardboard. You wouldn't do something silly like that. Sometimes we have too much of a good thing. Sometimes a good thing becomes bad when we have too much of a good thing, right? Like a restaurant buffet, okay? Too much of a good thing, you know, especially that, that dessert bar over there. Um, too much of a good thing can be bad. You know, sometimes you see in areas where there's great uh, malnourishment, you see pictures of, of kids, and they're hard to look at. Oftentimes these kids who are starving will have big round bellies and and part of the reason for that is, is a lot of these kids are growing up in areas where uh, their primary diet is sugar cane. And that's mostly what they eat. They eat sugar. And, and it tastes good. It gives them a little sugar rush. But it, there's no nutrition there. They starve to death, eating sugar all the time. And it destroys them. You see, as Christians, or really as just as human beings, we were created to exist and gain nutrition spiritually only from God alone, or to find our meaning in life through Him alone, to find peace and satisfaction in Him alone. And when we seek to find that anywhere else, what we do is we, we starve to death on sugar. Because we put our security in things that can't ever satisfy not that they're not good. You know, that video we watched mentioned some, and we'll mention some more here in a minute. Not that they're not good, but they're not God. And only He can really sustain us. So, so what do we do? Well, first thing we've got to do is we've got to recognize what our idols are, right? We've got to figure out what, you know, what are those things that take the place of God in our life. 
Um, you know, for Hezekiah, this was apparently an easy call. It doesn't tell us how Hezekiah came to the conclusion that, that this snake, Nehushtan, how it had become bad, but, but it had. He saw it. He saw the people offering incense to it. He said, this has gone too far. This is not what it was meant for. This is not good. We've got to remove it. He recognized something as an idol. He, he recognized that it, it no longer served its purpose. And, again, this had been around for 700 years. It wasn't like someone made this and Hezekiah said, no, that's not a good idea. Let's, let's go away. Moses made this. For something to exist as a religious symbol in their community for 700 years, you've got to believe they didn't really want to part with it. You know, it probably wasn't a real popular move on Hezekiah's part to destroy this thing that they had really come to life over 700 years. But he recognized something that everyone who came before him hadn't recognized or hadn't been there yet, and he recognized that this is no longer good. The place... This is taken. It's no longer good. We've got to get rid of it. And so that's what he, so that's what he did. So, so what do we do? You know, what are some things that we might need to recognize? I'm, I'm going to talk about a few things. Um, it's by no means going to be an exhaustive list. It's just some things that in working with students and, and families, it's some common things that seem to come up over and over again. And, and you may have your own idols that distract you from God. But... A few things we just want to want to mention briefly today. Uh, the first is probably one of the things that everyone thinks of. It was mentioned in the video, and that's wealth, money, material things. But I want to challenge you to think about this maybe in a way that that you haven't thought of it before. Um, probably if we were to go around the room and ask, do you have a problem with money in the sense that do you you know do you love money? Most of us would probably react to that with a no, right? Maybe. Now, some, some of you maybe not. Some of you maybe you're dealing with that very issue. But most of us would probably say, no, I don't really love money. But do we love comfort? Do we love the things that money buys? Could we do without it? How, how important do we put on the things that Money gives us. Um, you know, Jesus said something really scary to a rich guy one time. He, sa- he said, it's, said it's harder to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And the man he told that to went away. Act, or the, the man that he challenged to sell all this stuff and give it to God then went away sad and Jesus spoke those words. It's hard. Oh, probably a lot of us in this room don't consider ourselves rich because we tend to judge that by comparison. But the reality is, is that almost every one of you in here are rich. You look around the world, how most people live. Find out real quick that we've had it pretty good. Even when things aren't going well for us, we have it pretty good. Um, you know, I've had opportunity to travel just a little bit, not a whole lot. Been to England a couple of times. England is one of those nations that we sort of think of as being very much like our own. And one thing that struck me when I was there was how small everything was there. You know, their cars are small. They're, you know, unless you're just super wealthy, 
you live in a, you know, your houses or, or whatever you live in is very small. People that would be considered upper middle class there live in with much less than people, people here. It was startling because I thought it would be very much the same. We have so much in this country. Depending on what statistic you look at, we're probably the richest country in the world. Our economy sure is. As far as how much we make per household, we rank at least in the top ten. We're wealthy. And yet, in spite of that, we're one of the most indebted people in the world. Uh, The average household in America has $16,000 worth of debt. And yet, we have more stuff than almost anybody. Why would that happen? Well, I said we, we like our stuff. We like the instant gratification. We like often what we can't have. And when you are willing to spend money that you don't have on things that you don't need, well, something has become an idol. Something's taken the place of God in your life. And it causes stress on homes. It causes stress on families. It causes us to be very... Uh, stingy when it comes to giving. We don't feel like we can give because we have all this debt to buy things that very often we don't need. And it, and it kills us spiritually. We feel like we have to work more and more and more, do more and more to, to earn the money, to pay off what we, what we do. And it's, it's just this vicious cycle that so many, even believers, find themselves trapped in. So our money, our wealth, our stuff can get in the way of our relationship with God, it can become an idol. Another thing that can become an idol, or two things I kind of put together because one leads to the other, is our our education, our schools, our careers. And again, many of us, especially some some of us who've been working for a while and uh, have seen this in our lives or or in others' lives where your career becomes becomes everything to the detriment of your family. So, you know, that kind of story is familiar to us. We still run into that trap, but it's kind of familiar to us. But what we don't see is that very often the very habits that cause that start the age our our kids are. One of the sad things about being a youth pastor is to see how much pressure these kids are under. College is coming. And I've got to stand out somehow with my grades or with my abilities or, or something. Something about me has to stand out so I can get scholarships, so I can get... You know, money so I can get into the school that I want to. And there's so much pressure. And we get into that, to that, to that mode very, very young of having to perform and stand out. And so when we, and then we get into college. And then we have to get into grad school maybe. And then we have to actually get a job in a very rough job market. So we have to stand out somehow there. So we're always trying to do something. To stand out, starting with our school, you know, and leading into our career, and there's so much pressure, and it can so easily get to the point where we're no longer depending on God, but we're depending on our own abilities, and where we're putting our faith in our test scores to the detriment of our time with God, serving Him, the things He's called us to do. See, our world really values four things. And they all start with A. It's easy to remember. 
Academics, this one right here. Appearance, athletics, and the arts. That's what our world values. That's what we look to. And as you, you know, as our youth grow up and as our as you know, we as parents are trying to help our kids with this process, very often we feel compelled to focus on the exact same things the world does. Because we feel like they've got to get into college, they've got to have a good job, they've got to do this, they've got to do that. And so we accidentally push the exact same things that the world pushes in the same way to where these become their idols. Maybe because they're our, they're our idols too. Or we'll put school and jobs and things like that before time with God. Checking on how they're doing in a subject they're failing at, but not checking on how they're really doing, doing spiritually. So easy. Um, another, you know, de- what God calls us to is actually to depend on Him. It's easier said than done. But, you know, Jesus addressed this subject in, in Matthew 6. He said, you know, I know what you need, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. He says, you look at the lilies of the field, look at the grass. I take care of them. You're worth so much more. We can depend on God. It doesn't mean that God will let us into the school that we want to get into. It doesn't mean that He'll get us the you know, six-figure job that we want. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But God does promise, I will take care of you if you put me first. And it's something that we've got to strive to do. And moving on, another area that, that gets our attention is our extracurricular activities, sports, music, hobbies, those kinds of things. And it's for some of the same reasons. Um, I've got to be honest, God's really been working on me in this area this year. You know, depending on him rather than sports, I, uh, the teams I root for are Baylor, the Dallas Cowboys, and, and Auburn University. And God has seen fit to try to really humble me in this area. Um, but... Uh, But how much time and how much money do we put on this stuff? For us personally and for our kids. God has given us talents and interests and abilities. And, you know, you can see we've got some youth here that excel in many areas. But God never gave us those things to build ourselves up. God never gave us those things so that we could get notoriety. God gave us those things to serve Him. You know, Andy Stanley, the pastor you all are pretty well, many of you are aware of, and he has a pretty good series on parenting. And one of the things he says in it, um, in talking to parents, he says, you know, one of the big problems we see in parenting today is we see parents who, uh, their approach to parenting is to make their kids experientially rich, and yet they're relationally we view parenting in the sense that we want to provide all these experiences for our kids we want them to try every sport and have every opportunity to do everything and go on every trip and, and do all these cool things and there's again we're talking about good things we're not, not talking about bad things it's only when they get out of their proper place but when we elevate experience and, and abilities and all these things just like the world does we set our kids up for spiritual bankruptcy. 
when we're spending money and time that we don't have on these things. And our kids are never following Christ. They're never serving. They can barely even make it to church. We get our priorities backwards. See, as Christians, we can't be focused on academics, appearance, you know, athletics, and the arts. We have to focus on character, integrity, walking with Christ, and depending on Him, just like Matthew 6 said. Um, one of my favorite music groups is, is U2. Not U2. You get confused with that sometimes because I don't know who U2 is, which, which saddens me greatly. But... Um, you know, the lead singer of U2, Bono, is, has become very well known for his philanthropy. And I'm not going to set him up here as like the epitome of what it looks like to serve Christ, because he's not. But, uh, but he did say something one time that I really liked and respected. And here's what he said. He was talking uh, to Bill Hybels, uh, the pastor of Willow Creek Church, about his philanthropy and about his efforts overseas, you know, among poor and AIDS and all these different things. And, and, and here's what he said. He said, I'm a rock star. And, and because of that, I have a voice. And he said, it's actually ridiculous that I have a voice that people listen to. And he, he, you know, he, and that's the word he uses, ridiculous. He said, it is ridiculous that people care what I think because I play music. But they do. And so, he said, that's currency. So I'm going to use that to benefit these people. And so that's what he does. He gives tons of money to these different causes, and not only that, but he rallies people around him and says, come with me, let's do it together. And he's actually done a pretty effective job of helping even some churches to rally around some pretty significant issues in our day. And so even if the success comes through athletics or academics or the arts or whatever, even if that happens, it's still for God. It's not about us. We can't seek ourselves. We can't seek the fame. We can't seek the popularity. We can't do those things because then we're, we're making it an idol. And we're no longer focusing on God. You know, when does, when does this activity become, when do these activities become an idol? Well, like I said, it, it, they happen when, when these things take up so much of our time that we can't give our time and our resources to even better things. Um couple of examples just from from recent history. Um, a few years ago, uh, our youth ministry used to do a ministry called King's Club. Several of you went. Where we went downtown Waco, and we went to an apartment complex, and we shared Christ with the kids there. We had a little Bible club for them. We played games, gave them snacks. Saturday morning. We did it about twice a month, every other week. And we gave testimonies about it. And we shared about it, and we announced it. And we did this for two or three years, and finally we had to cancel it. Because we couldn't get ten people on Saturday morning every other week. Uh, more recently, one of the things our youth ministry does that I love is we go to My Brother's Keeper once a month. It's a homeless shelter here in town. And we feed the kids, or not the kids, they're grown-ups. We feed the adults, and we sit with them, and we talk with them, and we build relationships with them, and it's so cool, and we share, we encourage them with Scripture, and sometimes we sing with them, and it's just awesome. And, and very often we come way more blessed than probably we bless them. It's just such a cool thing. And, and, but the thing is, we can only take 15 people. Otherwise, we sort of overwhelm the place. And the thing is, in a year and a half, 
of doing this once a month, we've only, we've only hit that twice. Fifteen people once a month. And the encouragement is actually for parents and kids to do it together so that families serve together, so that we disciple our kids by, for, by setting that example. How many of us have been to a sporting event with our kids recently? How many of us have attended a school play or some other concert? Again, good things. Nothing wrong with it. But what happens when it takes the place of the best things? What happens to our families? What do they start to orbit around? What becomes their focus? We're facing major challenges even in our church body right now. We talk about all the time, lack of volunteers. Children's ministry is running so short right now that it's absolutely dependent on our teenagers. If our teenagers weren't helping in children's ministry, we wouldn't have one. Or it would look very, very different. Because we don't have enough helpers who are adults. Same thing with adult Sunday school classes and fellowship family leaders. We don't have enough Adults stepping up to do it. But how much time will we spend on these things? We've been talking a lot about our phase two of our building and and, and our next step in that. And and it's really cool and it's really exciting because our children's ministry is busting at the seams. Our youth ministry, you know, know, is is very full in our two rooms right now most of the time and and having to do things kind of awkwardly. Um, We don't have enough adult Sunday school. We don't have enough classrooms for more adult Sunday school classes. And so it would be so cool when we get to the point where we can satisfy some of these ministry needs. But the reality is that if we had that today, we couldn't fill them. Because we wouldn't have the teachers. We wouldn't have the leaders. Now, I'm not trying to slam Fellowship Bible Church. I love Fellowship Bible Church. You know, I'm on staff here, but I'm not here for a paycheck. I love this church because for several reasons. One, I love the mission and vision of our church, going deep, reaching out, discipleship, you know, sending people out. You know, I, I love what we're about. And there's so many incredible people who are following God in this church. You know, I love Fellowship Bible Church. But in many ways, we've gotten kind of lazy. And we need to step up. Because God is calling us to something better than winning championships or being the best at a concert. God's calling us to change the world. You see, Jesus is the hope of the world. In him is salvation. And there's only one group of people who have the message. And it's us. There's only one people that God charged with the responsibility of being a light to the world, of being the salt of the earth, of taking care of the issues and, and spreading this incredible news of the only Savior, the only hope for the world, and it's us. And if we're too busy to do it, or we're too stressed, or we're too financially in debt, then we fail at the very thing God called us to do. We get a couple other things, one more of these real quick, and we'll start to wrap this up. Our extracurricular activities, one other area that we tend to make an idol, it's our relationships. Man, this is huge. I mentioned David's little issue while ago. He had problems with relationships. His uh, son Solomon had 
huge issues with relationships throughout his life, all these different wives, and the Scripture says that they turned his, his heart from God. You know, I've seen this in my own life. When I was in college, uh, I dated a girl uh, for a few months, and um, she said she was a Christian. She would grown up in church, and, and, um, and I knew I could only date a Christian because I was a Christian, and that was important to me. Um, but what happened pretty quickly in the relationship was it turned out that what she meant by being a Christian was a little bit different from what, from what I was expecting. Um, her definition of being a Christian was she had grown up in a certain kind of church. And she flat out said, you know, I believe in God, but he's never going to be the most important thing to me. And when I talk about some of the missions efforts like that my church was doing, you know, her response would be, well, you know, those people were probably pretty happy before they got there. Why don't they just leave them alone? And the thing is, is that at that point in my life, I was so craving a relationship that I stayed in it much longer than I should have. And when the relationship finally ended, and I had people tell me, I had a couple of, couple of guys, one guy in particular that was mentoring me who said, you need to end this. This is not Christ-centered. This is not where you need to be. And I, I didn't want to lose it. And so I stayed in it longer than I should have. And when that relationship finally ended, surprise, surprise, my relationship with God was pretty pitiful too. And it took a while to build that back up. Our relationships that need to be loved or even liked or accepted is so strong. And again, we worship what we can see and we try to become who these people want us to become. And, and God wants us to have relationships. Remember, good things. He wants, you know, he wants these things for us. But when it becomes first place, when it takes the place of God, we've got we've to step back. How do you know it's become an idol? Well... That person that you're seeing or interested in, are you, do you look forward to serving God together with them? Or is faith kind of a tricky subject? Do you, you, know, do you see yourself raising kids the same way in terms of their relationship with Christ? Is that something you look forward to or is that going to be a point of contention? The quality of your relationship, the purity of your relationship, does it honor God? Or is that kind of a touchy subject too? And are you in a relationship just for what you can get out of it? Or are you actually learning how to love and be a blessing so that you're setting the standard for healthy marriage and family in the future? It's tough. I think as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He was talking specifically about money, but the same principle applies. No one can serve two masters. Jesus said you'll hate the one or love the other. You're in a relationship and you put that other person before God, you'll start to resent God. If you stay in that relationship and you pursue God, then if that causes issues in your relationship, well, that tells you what you need to do. And if you're already married, that gets a little more tricky because God has some things to say about that too. He actually tells us to, in humility and respect, and love and submission to actually witness to our unbelieving husbands and our saving spouses by our example. We don't stop serving God. If we realize that relationships become an idol and we've made a mistake, we honor God the best we can through that.
and we serve Him. And we don't compromise our faith because if we compromise our faith, then what's that unbelieving spouse going to think of it? It's not a very good example. So how do we remove our idols? We've got to do this quickly because I know we're running a little late on time here. How do we remove these idols? Uh, we're going to do this pretty simply. Um, Hezekiah, he broke it. Okay, He broke it into pieces. Now, in some cases this will work. Uh, this won't always work. Okay, This isn't going to work with your spouse. Um, but... Um, you know, in some cases, this, this can work. So, so how does this work? Okay, let's talk about, let's go back to, to there's a graphic here. If we can go to the next slide here. Basically, what we want to do is we want to replace a false view of Christian living. And this is the false view of Christian living. If you were in the milestones class with me last week, you'll recognize this. This is what a lot of us think it looks like to follow Christ. We have our, our different segmented areas of our life. We have our, our extracurricular activities. We have our church stuff. And we have our relationships, our spouses, our friendships, whoever. We have our school, our career. We have our money and how we spend our money and what we do in our free time. And we have all these things separate. And the problem with this is that it's totally unbiblical because it, it places faith and church, and we even start thinking of serving God as going to church, it replaces it, places it as just one thing in our schedule and, and in our time. And when other things push and shove for our attention, it'll pretty easily... I used to be able to snap. Uh, pretty easily just diminish and pop out because it, it can't compete because, again, all these other things are very visible. And even though the church building is visible and the people are visible, serving God himself, you know, he's, he's not visible. And that's tougher. And it's tougher to see real maturity. And, you know, that's more abstract. So we just make it one of, one of these things and it gets crowded out. It's not how... We were called to live. Instead, we replace it with a new version of what it looks like to be a Christian. And that's where our walk with Christ is everything. And everything relates to it. Our church activities relate to our walk with Christ. But so do our sports and our music and our hobbies and our extracurricular activities. Because, again, God gifted us in these areas and gave us interest to glorify Him. And you see different sports figures and musicians that, that do this and do this very well. And you see a lot that don't. But, you know, there's nothing that God's given us that we can't use to glorify him. Our relationships, part of our walk with Christ, and if, you know, our, our money, our school. And, and if these things don't fit or if they're, or if they're pulling away then you know, from our walk with Christ, if, if they don't fit in this bigger oval here, well, we have to make some major adjustments. If it is money, um, if wealth is our issue, Jesus had a couple of pretty good examples. Remember Zacchaeus? Stole from people. He was a tax collector. People hated him. And he said, um, well... When he came to Christ, without Jesus even saying anything, he went and uh, he repaid the people he'd stolen from four times over and gave away half his wealth. The rich young man that came to Jesus and said, I, you, know, how, you know, what do I need to do to follow you? Jesus said, well, sell all your stuff and come follow me. And he went away sad. Does that mean that we've got to give everything away to follow Christ? No, but it doesn't mean that that's not the case either. It may very well be. If money is your God... And the power to break that is to become the, the best giver ever. To be, become generous. You know, give it away where, you're no, where you cannot be dependent on it anymore. You know, find, find really good things to do with it. Be a blessing to others. You know, get rid of it. Um, you know, the material things that take the place of God, do without them. Your family budget, or if you have one, live within it. Spend less than what, what, you, know, than what you earn so that you have money to save and money to give. Same thing with your time. Don't plan so much in the day that you don't have time for God. So, you know, plan fewer hours. Then you actually have time in the day so that you have time to 
Stop and talk to somebody. You know, go serve at my brother's keeper or something. Um, or here in the church. If it's relationships, if you're married, and, you know, have a very serious talk. And if needed, in that relationship. School, career, good things. Study hard, do your best, but don't do it for yourself. And don't do it because you think if you don't do well that God will abandon you and you'll starve to death. And don't set that example and expectation for our kids. God's going to take care of them if they're serving him. He promises. So let's don't put undue pressure on them to, you know, that they have to do all these things. So we just, you know, so we just take these things and we put them back in their right, good place that God gave us. And then, our, and then finally, after that, we restore our worship. Because as we remove things and as we get rid of different and as we reorient our lives, what that's going to do is it's going to leave holes. If it's a relationship that ends, it leaves a hole. If it's a thing that we like that we can no longer afford, that we couldn't afford anyway, but we don't have it anymore, um, then it leaves a hole. Whatever this, you know, it'll leave a hole because that's where our passion and our energy was going to. So what do we do? We restore our worship. We focus on, on Christ. You know, Hezekiah destroyed the bronze snake so that people were focused on the temple and worshiping God there and worshiping the true God alone, not getting distracted. So we don't just leave gaping holes. We, we reorient. We, re, we relearn. We understand that we exist to be in a relationship with God, and we do that by glorifying him and obeying him. All that we have, all that he's given, us in, he's given it to us in trust for a very temporary period of time to turn around and use it for him. Jesus ran to this Samaritan woman at a well, and, and they were talking about several things, and one of the things that she asked him was, Jesus, our fathers say we should worship on this hill over here. Uh, the Jews say only in Jerusalem. What do you say? And Jesus' answer was very interesting. He, he said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's he saying? The place doesn't matter. Worship, even though the word like singing comes to our mind when we think about it, worship isn't about a building. When we worship, when we devote ourselves to God, it's a spirit of devotion and submission to our King. That's what it means to restore our worship, to put the King back in his rightful place, to kneel before him, to submit ourselves to him and, and obey him in our lives and in the lives of our families, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Everything orients towards glorifying him. All that we have, all we are, is all about him. He's our meaning in life. And everything, you know, that over those up there a second ago, everything points towards him. Jesus said spirit and in truth. It's the spirit of devotion. It's this truth that, that Jesus is our Lord. And he is the hope of the world. He is our Savior. And those who worship him will know that to the extent, you know, to the, to the degree that they'll tell others. They'll be about spreading that truth. They'll be about the only mission that really matters. Grant just spent the last four weeks going through the Great Commission reminding us of what our mission is. To go and make disciples and through doing that spread across the world and be the light and salt that God has called us to be. That is our mission. Nothing else. Not to become rich. Not to become famous. Nothing else. Not even to make sure our kids 
have everything that we had. Even that is not from God. Worship, the mission of God, living for Him, that's what He calls us to. And so my encouragement to you as we end here is to do exactly that. To worship God daily through your actions, your attitudes, and His words, and your words. Where the people of Israel were only in the position, back in the wilderness where the fiery snakes came, they were only in that position to complain because they gave up on God's promises first. They gave up on the promised land. God said, okay, plan B. It's going to be tough. When we give up on God's promises, when we refuse to make him first, it makes room for all this other stuff. But as we worship him, as we submit to him, we find all the meaning that we were created for. We find, our, we find ourselves, as the video said. So worship God daily through your actions, your attitudes, and your words. Let's pray. Father, I, God, I just thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would leave here today and we would begin really evaluating how we make our decisions, how we schedule our time, how we spend our money, how we've invested in relationships that may not be the best. God, reveal those things to us and give us the passion and the strength and the love for you that you would be first. It'll strengthen us so much that we can make the changes we need to make so that our lives and those of our families truly reflect your priorities and your mission. God, may we not shrink back because we're scared, scared of the future, scared of what what may happen if we really follow you scared of the ridicule or what people will think. God, may we, may we trust you. Seek you first in your righteousness and just sit back and watch as you provide as we follow you. And God, we know that you're good. You're a father that loves to give good gifts. May we use them appropriately for your glory. Amen.